folks uh, that are going to be coming in over the next few minutes, and we're glad to have you with us. I know a lot of our church family uh, is is out of town uh, this weekend because of, well, it's summer break, and so some people went on vacation, some people got, I don't know, baseball, some people got soccer, some people, you know, got the beach, whatever it is. <laughs> There's a lot of our church family that may be missing today, but we're glad that you're here. We've got, got some guests with us today. We're honored by your presence. Thank you for choosing to worship with us as well. Need to take care of a couple of housekeeping things. We start our worship this morning. First of all, uh, you're not required to wear a mask during this service. Uh, if you want to wear one, you're more than welcome to. But it's mask optional for our 1030 service, so why don't you be aware of that. Um, we do have uh, child care available during this service for our third grade and younger. So uh, babies to third grade, if you got kids in that age range, uh, you're welcome to take them any time during our worship. Not just right now, but any time during our worship. You can go right back um, to our children's center and get them checked in, and, and uh, we got volunteers ready to take care of them while you continue to worship in here with us, so feel free to take advantage of that. If you're not going to use um, our Children's Center, that's fine. If you need something to kind of keep your kids engaged while they're in here, we have some activity bags that are out in our lobby just right across uh, on, from the other side of this wall right here, and uh, you're welcome to go get one of those for your kids and, and uh, let them have some activities to, to work on while you're engaging in worship with us. So feel free to take advantage of that as well. We will be taking communion together today. And uh, when that time comes, you should have a communion cup that is sitting on your chair. And when we take communion, if you peel off the first lid, uh, you get the wafer there and then peel off the second lid and drink the juice. And that's how we'll take communion uh, this morning. So I wanted you to be aware of that as well. I'm excited to be worshiping with you today. Um, our 9 o'clock service went great. We had a great time of singing and prayer and time of the word. And I... I know that we're going to have that uh, for this service as well. Special treat for us today, one of our very good friends, David Scott, uh, volunteered on very short notice uh, and after a week of church camp to come lead our worship this morning, and he did a great job for our 9 o'clock service, and I know he's going to do a good job again this morning. So we're excited to have him uh, be with us today as we worship together. So I'm going to ask God to bless our time of worship, and then we'll begin singing and, and praying and spending time in the Word together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for blessing us with the opportunity to be here and to, um, to visit and to connect with each other uh, and also, God, to connect with you. So we, we are just so thankful for that opportunity and for the, the reason that we have for this connection and our relationship with your son, Jesus. So, God, we just pray that you are already starting to fill this place with your presence, that as we sing to you, as we pray to you, as we, as we celebrate the grace that we receive because of your son's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, as we spend time in your word and allow you to speak to us and to our hearts today, God, we, just, we pray that we, we just know, we sense and we know that you are here with us today, that you are a part of everything that we're doing. And may we sing praises to you, not just with our voices, but with our hearts. And may we listen intently to what you have to say um, to us today. And God, I pray especially this morning for those who are here uh, or, or maybe even joining us online who, um, who are struggling, who are struggling with, with sin in their life, who are struggling with some physical problems, who are struggling with just looking for answers and searching for, for some meaning or, or, God, whatever the, the issue is that they would find peace in you, that they would find forgiveness and grace and hope in you, and that they would find a church family in us that is willing to help in any way that we can. So we give this morning to you, God, and we ask you to go to work on our hearts as we lift our voices to you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's stand up together and sing about the presence of heaven now and the glory of heaven to come. Go, heaven is in my heart. Heaven is in my heart. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let earth and heavenly saints proclaim the After this song, we'll be approaching the 
Lord's table, our communion time, this time of, of fellowship, not just with each other, but with God in heaven. And while this time is certainly a time of reflection, a time of remembrance, it is also a time of praise. Because we come to the table not because of anything that we have done, we come because we've been invited to a meal prepared by a king for his children to enjoy. And that, that should make our hearts always lift praise to him. So let this song be a prelude to that meal, a time of praising our good father. There is an endless song that goes through my soul. I hear
Marshall's been talking to, talking to us about um, this idea or this theme of the greatest of all time. And so I thought this morning we'd, we'd take a few moments to look at how Christ's sacrifice was the greatest sacrifice of all time. And I'm sure that somebody already this month has talked about this, but, you know, it's okay to repeat it. It's an awesome sacrifice, and it's, it's wonderful to think about. So uh, forgive me if this is repetitious. But there's three things that I want to look at this morning and, you know, three ways where Christ's sacrifice was the greatest of all time. You know, first, he knew what he was doing, so he made a voluntary sacrifice. It wasn't involuntary. Uh, secondly, this sacrifice was permanent. It was for all time. Lastly, Christ's sacrifice removed our sins. And so a, a few scriptures I want to look at. Just keep these thoughts in your mind as, as, and see if you can hear these points come out. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This chapter, I think, does a great job of, of talking about this point. Hebrews 10 and 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and, when, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If you skip down in that same uh, chapter, picking up in verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest this priest being Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Over in the book of John, John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus talks about how he, he did this voluntarily because he loves us. Beginning in verse 17, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So again, hey, these three points, if you can keep this in mind, you know, as we go throughout the week, Christ's sacrifice, the greatest of all time. He knew what he was doing. He, he did it voluntarily. Nobody made him do it. You know, when they would sacrifice the perfect lamb or a young bull, uh, that animal did not know what was going on. But Christ knew exactly what he was doing. Hebrews, we see that that sacrifice was permanent. It, you know, we didn't have to repeat it. It was once for all time. And unlike the blood of bulls and goats, Christ's sacrifice can remove our sins. And so that's good news, and we want to praise God for that. If you would, bow with me. Dear God, thank you so much uh, for this day and for this opportunity to come and to worship. And we're grateful for this time where we can commune with you. We just want to give you praise for your sacrifice. We thank you for this um, bread and this uh, juice, which represents your body and blood that that you voluntarily gave for us. And we know you did it because you love us. Help us to keep that in our minds as we reflect this morning. Also, help us to remember 
that you have power over death and uh, help us to remember the resurrection. And we uh, thank you for that hope, and we look forward to being together with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about the goat. 
the greatest of all time. Who's the goat? Who's the greatest? Who's the most famous? Who's the best? Did y'all have, start having discussions this week about the goat in different different categories, different things? I mean, even on our on our uh, flagstone, uh, you know, our, our Instagram and our Facebook pages, we kind of put a poll out there. I think this week was what's the what's the goat candy bar? What's the greatest candy bar of all time? And we got a lot of different you know answers. Uh, a lot of them were wrong, but you know there were people that submitted. Uh, different answers. We had discussions on what counts as a candy bar because I know there are a lot of votes for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups being the goat, but is it a bar because it's a cup? Does that count as a bar? I don't know. And then Brandon is trying to say that Sour Patch Kids are a candy bar, and that's just wrong altogether. So anyway, uh, but we're going to keep doing that. I, I hope you'll keep looking at our at our Facebook page or our Instagram page. We're going to keep doing that over the next several weeks. Just putting some questions out there. Who's the goat? Um, Today, we're going to be talking about who's the goat southpaw, who's the greatest southpaw of all time. Now, there are some of you, uh, probably not many, but, but at least some of you that don't know exactly what a southpaw is, so I want to make sure that everybody knows what a southpaw is. A southpaw is just another word for a left-handed person, and uh, there may be people who are watching this online, there may be some in this room, uh, if, you, if you are a left-handed person, Raise your hand right now. There's a. I thought my, the left hand might shoot up. Uh, so we got a few in here, yeah. And most people, I mean, statistics tell us that most people are right-hand dominant, but there is a significant portion of the world's population that is left-handed. Now, why do they call them Southpaw? Well, there's a lot of different answers for that and uh, a lot of different reasons. A lot of people refer to Southpaws when they refer to baseball players and boxers, these left-hand dominant um, players. And one of the reasons that has been given for why they started using it in baseball was back in the 1800s, uh, a lot of the major league um, baseball fields, professional baseball teams, they would build their fields with home plate on the west side of the field. Um, and I don't know exactly why. I'm sure it had to do something with the sun in your eyes and those kind of things, but the, but the home plate was to the west. So if you're left-handed and you're turning the batters over here, you're facing the south because that's west, you see. And so if you were left-handed, you would throw this hand, you're a southpaw. I don't know if that's really the reason why. That's one of the reasons that some people give. Some people take it even further back and say that there was this, this concept, especially in religious uh, connotations, that, uh, you know, heaven was in the north and hell was in the south. And so uh, whichever place you were going when you died, you were going north. You know, when you die, you're heading north or you're heading south. Um, again, I don't know if that's fairly accurate, but, there was, but, but the reason they call south pause people from the south, there, was, there, were, there were some who thought something's wrong with you if you're left-handed. Not just physically wrong, but morally wrong with you uh, if you're left-handed. And actually, God doesn't like you very much, and so you're a southpaw. You're, you're heading south when this life is over because you got this, this paw that's left-hand. I don't, I don't know that that's accurate either. Um, there's all sorts of reasons. You, you may have heard some different ones. I mean, look it up on the Google. You can find everything out on the Google, right? So there's all sorts of different reasons why we refer to left-handed people as southpaws. But that's, that's where that word comes from. And hear me say, I, I probably need to clarify, I don't think that left-handed people are evil people. And I don't think that there's something uh, wrong with them. So the question again, who's the goat? Southpaw. Who's the greatest Southpaw of all time? You can have a lot of different answers for that. I mean, a lot of famous people have been left-handed. Babe Ruth. Let's talk about baseball. Babe Ruth, one of the best baseball players ever, right? Left-handed. Jimi Hendrix. 
Ever heard of Jimi Hendrix, the guitarist? Left-handed. Albert Einstein, left-handed. I didn't realize that until I started doing some research. He's left-handed. Barack Obama, left-handed. Leonardo da Vinci, left-handed. Winston Churchill, pretty famous politician, left-handed. Oprah Winfrey, left-handed. And let's not forget the, the great southpaw from Philadelphia, Rocky Balboa, left-handed, right? So we got a whole bunch of left, and there's more. I mean, you can, there's all sorts of lists out there that talk about famous left-handed people, but that's, that's a pretty good list right there. That's a lot of famous left-handed people, a lot of famous southpaws. Just of those folks right there, who's the GOAT? I mean, you could break it down into different categories. Maybe Jimi Hendrix is the greatest left-handed guitarist of all time. I don't know. But is he the greatest left-hander in general of all time? Lots of debate about that, right? So we started talking last week here at Flagstone about the GOAT and about not great athletes, not great musicians or actors or uh, political figures, but men and women that are talked about in Scripture. Men and women that are talked about in Scripture, and there's something about you know, there's an aspect of their lives, there's a character trait that they have, and that particular trait, they may be the greatest at it. They may be the, the person who did the greatest job at that particular thing. And that's what we're talking about. So we talked about last week, so we're talking about again today and for the next several weeks, some, some goats, some greatest of all times that we find um, in Scripture. So today, we're going to look at somebody in Scripture that just might be the greatest southpaw of all time. And it may be a story that's familiar to many of us, but it may be a story that's brand new to some of us. So we're going to go through it together. So if you've got your Bibles, your Bible apps, go to Judges chapter 3. That's in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're looking it up in your table of contents, it's not too far down the list. But you can go to Judges chapter 3. That's where we're going to be uh, and where we're going to find this southpaw um, this morning. Now, just to give you kind of a, uh, we're not going to read, uh, you know, all the verses of this. We're just going to kind of go through the story together. So you can kind of be following along as we talk about it. But just to give you a little bit of a background as to what's happening with God's people, Israel, in Judges chapter 3. The, the people of Israel have been led out of Egyptian slavery. If you go back to Exodus and the books after that, they had been slaves for 400 years. God has set them free. And Moses had led them out of slavery uh, into the wilderness and all the way to the promised land, the, the land of Canaan, the, the area of the world where Israel is located now. That's where they were headed. Um, and Moses led them that whole time. But then he dies, and then a guy named Joshua takes over. And Joshua actually leads them into this land that God was giving them. But they were going into a land that was surrounded by, well, it was filled with a whole bunch of other nations and cultures, and it was surrounded by those as well. And so when the Israelites came into this land, they had to fight a bunch of battles and kind of kick everybody out so that they could take uh, possession of this land. And Joshua led them through all those different battles. But then Joshua dies, and now they've taken possession of the land. They start to live there. Um, and the problem is they didn't get rid of all these different nations and cultures around them. And so what the Israelites would do uh, for the next several hundred years after Joshua is they would go through this cycle, this repetitive behavior, where they would be following God and they would, they would offer sacrifices like Jake just talked about a few minutes ago in our communion thoughts, and they would obey the laws and they would do the things they were supposed to do. They would be worshiping God, and then they would see some of the other gods and goddesses of the nations around them, and they're like, you know what, I want to do that over there. I want to, I want to follow that God. I want to worship that goddess. And so they start doing that. They started uh, taking on some of the habits and, and, and uh, worship practices of the nations around them, and they would walk away from God. And then 
you know, God would get frustrated with that. And so he would allow one of these nations to come in and kind of oppress them, take over, take them captive and make their lives miserable. And then they would feel bad and they would say, God, we're so sorry. We'll never do that again. We'll never leave you. We're going to follow you from now on. And God would forgive them and he would send a deliverer that is called a judge. And he would, he would send this leader uh, to go rescue them. And, and the judge would rescue them, and then they would follow God for a while. And then they would see the other gods and goddesses of some of the nations around, and they'd say, you know what? We want to do what those people are doing. They would start worshiping these other gods and goddesses, and then God would allow them to be taken over by another country again. And they would say, oh, God, we're so sorry. We, don't, we, we, we didn't mean to do that. We won't do it again. We'll be devoted to you from now on. We'll be dedicated to you from now on. And God would forgive them, and he would send a judge to rescue them. And things would be okay for a while until they would see another god or goddess from another one of these countries. And then they would start worshiping. And it just kept repeating itself over and over and over again. That's what's happening with God's people when we come to Judges chapter 3. And so they're in this time where um, God has actually allowed another nation to, to take over and to hold them captive and, and to oppress them. Uh, it's the nation of Moab. And Moab, if you, if you look on a Bible map and see where Israel is, Moab is to the east of Israel. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. And they come across a river and they attack and they take over and they, they demand that the Israelites pay them tribute and do, you know, work, you know, forced labor for them and all those kinds of things. And Moab at the time had a king whose name was Eglon. And we don't know much about Eglon besides he's, a, the, the, he's the, the king of Moab and he's very fat. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm telling you what Scripture says. Scripture says he's really fat. So a really fat king that was in, uh, that was in control of the kingdom of Moab. And he's oppressing Israel, and, and this is going on for 18 years. And then the Israelites cry out to God, and they ask for forgiveness, and they ask for deliverer, and he sends them one. So you look in Judges chapter 3, and verse 15, and you see this deliverer mentioned. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. And so Ehud comes on the scene, and Ehud, the way he rescues Israel is he gets together with some other guys, and they bring the tribute that they were having to pay to King uh, Eglon. They bring it to him, and then they leave, and then he tells the other guys who brought the tribute with him. He's like, you know what, i got to go talk to Eglon uh, for another minute. So they go on and leave and leave Ehud by himself. And he comes to, uh, back to King Eglon and says, Eglon, I've got a secret message for you. And Eglon kicks out all of his attendants and kicks everybody out of the room, and he says, okay, tell me the secret message. And what Eglon didn't realize was that Ehud had a hidden dagger, a hidden, you know, kind of a small sword that he had uh, hidden on his person. And so when he gets close to uh, Eglon, Eglon says, you know, come close, tell me the secret message. And when he gets close to him, he takes that sword, he takes that dagger, and he plunges it into Eglon's belly. Now, I don't want to get too graphic and too gross this morning, although when I was a kid and I heard this story, I loved this story. But anyway, um, he takes that 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 dagger, and he plunges it into Eglon's belly and pushes it so far in that Eglon's fat covers over the handle of that dagger, and he can't get it out. And, and he just falls on the ground and begins to die. Well, Ehud locks the doors of the room from the inside and escapes out the back door and takes off running. So Eglon's in this room all by himself and basically wallowing in, you know, in his blood and filth until he dies. Well, his attendants come to the door, it's locked, and they think to themselves, okay, well, he's been in there a while, but maybe, I mean, Scripture says, maybe they thought maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's relieving himself and give him a little bit of time. Uh, but then eventually they, they are like, this is taking too long. They're kind of embarrassed, but they, kind of, they go ahead and break the door down to make sure that he's okay, and then they find him laying there dead on the ground. And Ehud's already made his escape. 
And then Ehud gets several miles away, and he blows a trumpet, and he calls out to the Israelites. He says, hey, Eglon's dead. Let's go attack the Moabites. And they do. They, get a, they rally an army together, and they go and attack the Moabites, and they drive them back across the river, and they win their freedom. And the Ehud leads them into freedom. And this is a great victory for God's people, and they continue to have peace, and they continue to, to live the way that God wants them to for 80 years. And that's a lot of different, that's kind of a quick summation of that story, but the important thing that we want to notice about Ehud this morning was that Ehud was a southpaw. I mean, look at Scripture, it specifically mentions Ehud was a left-handed man. And if you go through the Bible, there's only about three times in all of Scripture that somebody specifically mentions being left-handed, and this is one of them. So I think it's significant. I think there's something that God wants us to know and to recognize about Ehud, about the fact that Ehud was a southpaw. And I'll tell you, in my opinion, Ehud might be the goat southpaw. He might be the greatest left-hander of all time. And I want, I want you to see why it's significant that he was left-handed. I mean, Scripture tells us, if you go back and look in the details of that story, Scripture tells us that this dagger that, that um, Ehud used, he strapped it to his right thigh because he's left-handed. If you're going to grab a weapon that's, that's strapped to you, if you're left-handed, you want it on your right side so you can pull that weapon out. Most right-handed people have their weapon, their sword or whatever, on their left-hand side. If a right-handed person tried to pull a weapon out on their right-hand side, they might cut themselves, you know, in the process. And so you wanted to go to the opposite side with your weapons. Does that make sense? So he strapped this dagger to his, his right thigh. He's left-handed. And that's significant because, you know, going to see King Eglon, uh, it's quite possible that he would have been searched for weapons. Well, what they would do back in that time, sometimes they would just have you open your, your robe or your cloak up so they could see that you didn't have any hidden weapons. But most people are right-handed, so the weapons would be on the left side. So when he opens it up, nothing there, no weapons. Even if they searched him, nothing on this side. He's got this weapon on this right side. They wouldn't have thought of that. Also... Um, in the culture of, of ancient Israel, and even other cultures over the centuries, like I said, the right hand was the hand that was associated with power and with strength, with wisdom. And especially even in Israel, even among God's people, the right hand represented righteousness. I mean, you can go through the Psalms. David says, think, when he's describing God in some of the Psalms, he talks about God's right hand being filled with righteousness. He talks about God's right hand that has done mighty things. If you go a few hundred years later, the prophet Isaiah uh, talks about God, and, and in one part of Isaiah, he says that God is, is lifting up, he's holding up his people with his righteous right hand. And so left-handed people back in Ehud's time were seen as different and peculiar and maybe even something was just wrong with them let me take that a step further if you go back to the ancient Hebrew that this particular part of scripture is actually written in the Hebrew word that we translate with our English word left-handed literally means shut up or bound in the right hand so it could mean that it's just a, a way of, of saying that, you know, Ehud was left-hand dominant. Or it could mean that Ehud actually had maybe a deformed right hand or at least a lame one. He couldn't use it. He was physically unable to use his right hand. And if that's the case, if that's what's true, then Eglon would be even less worried about Ehud coming in there, you know, to give him a secret message. Because, first of all, he doesn't have any weapons on his 
left side. And second of all, his right hand seems like he can't even use it in the first place. What would Eglon have to worry about? So it's significant that Ehud had, you know, was, was, had the use of his left hand. But if, it's, if, it's, if it is true, if it's accurate that not only did Ehud use his left hand more than his right, but that actually something was wrong with his right hand, that's significant. Because that would mean that for a significant portion of Ehud's life, he had probably been told and maybe even been led to believe that he wasn't as good as everybody else. That he wasn't as useful as everybody else. And even in the culture they lived in, that God didn't approve of him as much as he did other people. And for God to actually use Ehud, for God to, to use a man who may have felt less than everyone else, who may have felt unacceptable to other people, who may have even felt unacceptable to God. For God to say, that's the person I'm going to use to provide victory for my people and to give deliverance to my people, that's important and that's significant. And that's why I think that Ehud quite possibly might be the goat left-hander. He might be the greatest southpaw of all time. Because I think there's times in our lives that we feel left-handed. I think there's things in our lives that cause us to feel left-handed. And I want to be clear, it's, I, I'm not talking about whether we feel right-hand or left-hand dominant. And I also want to be clear, I don't believe that it's sinful. I don't believe that it's wrong to be physically left-handed. But I think that there's, there's reasons, there's things that happen in my life that cause me to sometimes feel, I guess I can say, spiritually left-handed. They cause me to feel like I'm just not, I'm not fully able to be who I think I should be. That there's something, there's something just kind of wrong with me. There's something different about me compared to everybody else. Not just physically, but emotionally, with my family, even spiritually. That I have something that's holding me back. That I have something that's, that's keeping me from, from being what I feel like everybody else gets to be. And it's keeping me from being looked at like everybody else, you know, uh, feels about themselves. Maybe even, maybe even causes me to feel like I'm not as accepted by God as other people are. And it could be a variety of different things that, that cause me to feel that way. Sometimes it's just circumstances in life that cause me to feel like I'm, I'm, being, I'm being held back in some way. There's something different about me compared to everybody else. And it could be different things. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's you know, something I had no control over. It wasn't me that made these choices. It's just stuff that happened. Life just happened. I mean, we talked about this with our church family uh, a couple of months ago. And I, I would invite you to go back and look at our series, Didn't See It Coming. Because we talked about different things that happened to us in life that we weren't prepared for. And it wasn't even necessarily anything that we did to cause it to happen. We just didn't see it coming when it did happen. That happens to us, right? Some of us have experienced a job change or even a job loss. I, I wasn't ready for it. I thought I was doing fine. I thought that I was going to be secure in this job. Nope, you're not. Job done. And maybe I got transferred. Maybe I got demoted. And maybe I lost a job altogether. It wasn't for me anything that I did, but it just happened. 
Some of us have experienced, you know, marriage issues. I've put my, I've put my energy into this. I've, I've tried to be a good spouse. I try to be a blessing to this person I'm married to. And for whatever reason, it's just not enough. They're not accepting of me. They want to walk away from it. They want to be done with it. Maybe I endured some kind of an abusive situation. Maybe that was years ago when I was younger, and I had no control over that. That was somebody else doing those things to me. Or maybe it's happening in an emotional way uh, even nowadays. Some kind of hurt that somebody's caused me, and it's not fair, and it's not right, but I'm having to go through it. And it makes me feel like less of a person when I go through it. Maybe, maybe it's you know, a, a friendship that I used to have, and, and now I, I just, we got hurt. They gossiped about me. They, they said some hurtful things to me. They did something hurtful to somebody that I care about, and now that friendship that I thought was great and healthy is falling apart. Maybe I was in a dating relationship. Things seemed to be going good. I thought we were going in the right direction, and now all of a sudden they've walked away from me, and now I feel, I, I don't just feel alone. I feel rejected. And I don't know why. I don't know why these things are happening. Now I feel confused or I feel guilty. There's all these different circumstances that happen in our lives that we don't necessarily have any control over. We weren't the source of those things happening, but we're having to go through them. And we look at other people, and they're not going through the same things we are. And now we feel even more hurt because of it. And we feel like they, they got use of both hands, and I don't. Things are going better in their life than they are in mine. And then we start to believe, like, God likes them more than he does me. Other church people like them more than they like me. I don't feel like I'm as good as everybody else. Maybe it's not just circumstances. Maybe it's my past. Maybe it's, it's my own choices and decisions that I've made and actions that I've taken and words that I've said that have hurt other people, that have caused a job loss, that have, that have I guess, walked me into um, an addiction. And I wish I could point the finger at, at other people. I wish I could blame other circumstances, but it really boils down to it, it's me. I'm the one that's caused this. I'm, I'm the one that, that may have been abusive to somebody else. I'm the one that got into the habit and got into the addiction in the first place. And I could try to blame it on a bunch of different circumstances, but it really boils down to me. I made those choices. I'm the one who gave up on the marriage. I'm the one who betrayed the person that I said I was going to be committed to. I'm the one who filed for a divorce. I'm the one who was the absent parent. And I could blame, uh, you know, job and circumstances and all sorts of things, but really just boiled down to I just didn't give time and effort and focus to my kids. I'm the one who gossiped. I'm the one who hurt the friendship. I'm the one who messed things up and, and it seems like it's beyond repair. I did those things in my past. And I can't change it. I can't do anything about it. It's already done. But now, not only am I dealing with the pain of whatever it was that I did and the consequences of those things, but now I've got guilt and I've got hurt on top of that. And I, and I feel this guilt and I feel this hurt because I think that God looks at me through those lenses. And I feel like other church people look at me only based on the mistakes of the past, only based on the things that I've done that I shouldn't have done in the past, and, and my shortcomings and my imperfections. And I feel left-handed. I feel incomplete. I feel unusable. Maybe it's not anything particular that I can point to. It's just my own view of myself. Maybe I just struggle with how I see me. It's not specific actions that I can point to. It's not 
a, a specific instance that, that I was a part of. I just don't think much of me, and I don't think other people do either. And I don't think my God does. And I look at other people, and, and, and emotionally and spiritually, they seem to have it all together, and they, they can use both hands, and they can do a whole bunch of things, and they can volunteer and get involved and, and, and uh, connect with other people and make friendships, and for whatever reason, I just can't. And I feel like I'm constantly trying to measure up, and, I'm, and I never can. I never can be what I, what I think other people want me to be. I never can be what I think God wants me to be. And, and because of that, I just I, I feel handicapped. I feel strapped. I feel like I'm not good enough. And when I feel this way, when I feel like I'm spiritually left-handed, when I feel like I'm just not, not enough in and of myself, that will cause me to, to either start or keep doing ungodly things that will cause me to disconnect from people who might be a, a blessing in my life. It will cause me to stop volunteering and helping and, and trying to be a, a blessing to other people. It will cause me to walk away from my relationship with God. And it, it's not about excuses. It's not about rationalizing and c- trying to come up with reasons why. I just, I, sometimes I just need to acknowledge that I just, I feel, I feel like this. I feel like I'm less than other people. I feel like God, God can't use me, so he's not going to. So what's the point? I don't feel fully useful. I don't feel fully accepted. I would imagine that between the folks who are watching online and between just the number of people in this room, there's several of us that have felt that way. Maybe some of us feeling that way right now. And if you don't feel that way, I guarantee you there's somebody in your life who's struggling with that, that kind of mindset, who feels left-handed. It feels like there's something holding them back from, from being all the things that they could be. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about, well, what do we do when those times come? How do, how do, I, how do I handle that when I feel spiritually left-handed? And before I do that, I do want to make this, I don't know, disclaimer, I guess. And I want to just say, if, if I or anyone in this church family has ever caused you to feel less than because of words that, that I've used, because of the way that we've treated you, I want to apologize for that. And if it's somebody else besides me, I want to apologize on behalf of them. You didn't deserve that. We're going to try to do better. And sometimes it is it is the people who should know better and who should do better that cause the biggest hurt. And if I've been the source of that or anybody this church family has, please forgive us. But I want, to, I, I want us to talk for just a minute about what to do. When I feel bound like this, what do I do? The first thing that, that I can do, first thing I need to do, is embrace the imperfection. 
whatever the flaw is, whatever it is that, that's causing the problem, I need to embrace it. Now, I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that if there's sin in, in, in my life, if there's things, if there's ungodly things that I'm doing, that I should just wrap my arms around it, embrace it, and go, all right, well, I'm just going to keep sinning then. I'm just going to fully give myself to it. I was kind of tiptoeing in it before, but now I'm diving in. That is not what I'm saying, okay? So I want to be clear on that. What I am saying is that there are difficult circumstances that I may have gone through, and there's, there's past mistakes that I, it's my choices, mistakes that I have made, but now I'm on the other side of them. And I don't need to get wrapped up in trying to pretend those things didn't happen or try to hide them and, and, and hope that nobody ever finds out about them, but to acknowledge them and be honest about them and to lean into them and embrace them and recognize that God has brought me through them and that God is still using me on the other side of them. He's empowering me not only to, to get beyond those things, but to be a blessing to other people, even in spite of those things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that's over in the New Testament. You got the Apostle Paul talking to the church in Corinth. And it describes what he calls what he calls his thorn in the flesh. And there's lots of different opinions on what he was actually talking about, because Paul's not very clear about it. Paul doesn't talk about it for very long or in very much detail. And so some people think maybe it was a physical thing because you can read through other scriptures and, and discover that Paul probably had some kind of problem with his vision. There was something uh, wrong with his eyes. And so maybe that's what he's talking about, uh, you know, when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, this problem that keeps coming up again and again. Or maybe he's talking about a specific person. It's this person that's negative, that's critical, that's always causing problems for him, that always just seems to be, you know, those people that are just constantly just a dig in your side. And, and he's got this one person or maybe this group of people that continues to be a problem for him. Or maybe it's a spiritual struggle that he's dealing with. I mean, he talks about in the book of Romans, we've talked about this before, how he knows the good stuff that he should, that he should do, but he keeps on doing the stuff that he doesn't want to struggle with, and yet he does anyway. And maybe that's his thorn in the flesh. It keeps being this problem, this temptation, this sin again and again and again. It doesn't matter if, you know, that much this morning about what the actual problem was. What I, want you to, what I want you to understand is that Paul begs God, God, please get rid of this. Please take this away from me. And God's answer every time Paul asks is, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not just going to release you from it, but I am going to use it. And I'm going to bless you through it, and I'm going to use you to bless other people on the other side of it. And when we get on the other side of it, you're going to see how I carried you through that. And you're going to see how I'm using you beyond that. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, in those moments when I feel spiritually left-handed, when I feel less than everybody else, when I'm focused on my guilt and my flaws and my failures. In those moments, I actually embrace it. I delight in it. Because when I'm at my weakest, that's when God's strength is on display. When I feel less than everyone else, God uses that. And he makes me strong and he does things for me. He does things through me. Paul says, I embrace my weaknesses. I embrace the times that are hard. I embrace my failures. Because in those moments, man, I get to sit back and watch God. It's not that I'm going to go out and try to fail. It's not that I'm going to go out and try to sin. I just know when those times come, when I'm strapped down because of my own choices, because of life itself, I know that God's going to do something with that. 
that God's not only going to empower me to get through it, he's going to bless me with opportunities to do something with it. If I feel left-handed, if I feel less useful, if I feel less acceptable because of whatever, circumstances, fear, choices, my past, guilt, I need to embrace those moments. I need to lean into them. And then I need to allow God to actually use that imperfection to show his strength. I mean, that's what Paul talks about. Allow God to actually use this. And what I see is a failure. What I see is something that's imperfect. What I get frustrated with, God looks at that and goes, let, let me use that. Let me take that and do something with it. What I perceive as a flaw, God says, this is going to be an awesome opportunity for me to show my strength. I mean, God used Ehud's imperfection, right? God used something that, that Ehud thought was no good and thought made him a little less worthy than anyone else. And God used that for good. And I believe that, that God can still do that for us. Going back to the Apostle Paul again, I mean, how much do you know about Paul's story that we see in Scripture from before he became a Christian? I mean, Paul struggled with, with anger. He was arrogant. He, he uh, you know, jailed innocent people. He ripped families apart. He even says he was a murderer. He had innocent people killed. Those are some pretty significant imperfections and flaws, aren't they? Anger, arrogance, murder. I think those are some character flaws. And yet, Paul met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he gave those things to Jesus, and he, and he experienced forgiveness of them. And Jesus gives him, gives him life and gives him a second chance and gives him hope. And he goes out and he preaches, and he, and he convinces other people to experience the grace that he's experienced. And he establishes churches, and he experiences joy, and he experiences peace. And even when there's difficult circumstances that he's going through, he says, man, I, I rejoice when things are bad. Because I'm allowing God in those moments to show his strength. When, when Paul, I mean, when Paul told people that God can forgive anything, he knew that God could forgive anything because he had experienced it himself. When God says the grace of Jesus and the blood of Jesus can cover any sin and take care of it and make you, make you feel whole and make you feel brand new, the guy that's saying those things knew exactly what that felt like because he had been significantly left-handed in the past. Does that make sense? He had, significantly, he had been significantly hampered by his sin and his choices and his attitude and his mindset. And God forgave all those things and set him free from all those things. And he did something with it. He allowed God to show his strength through Paul's life so that other people could experience that grace themselves. And this is what he describes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 16. He says, for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners. I mean, Paul was still struggling, by the way, years later with guilt over his past life. Still considering himself to be the worst of sinners. And he says, but, but I was shown mercy so that in me, Christ Jesus could display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I am full of flaws. I am full of imperfections. I am full, I have had so many failures. I've had so many shortcomings. And yet, one of the awesome things that God did was he took all those things, all my failures, all my imperfections, all my flaws, and he used those things to change people's lives. 
to show people grace. Folks, we don't need to pretend that we don't have failures. We don't need to pretend that, no, everything's fine. I know this hand down here is kind of weird, but no, I'm good. Everything's good. We need to be honest about that with ourselves, with God, with other people. Not in a arrogant and bragging way. In a sincere and genuine way. I said, man, look, I'm left-handed. But God's doing some awesome things in my life. And every time he does, I get to see his strength on display. And it's an amazing thing to see. So I need to embrace the imperfections. I need to allow God to use the imperfections to show his strength. And then I need to invite other people to engage and enjoy that victory. When I see how God has blessed me in spite of my past, in spite of my failures, in spite of my imperfections, in spite of the circumstances I'm going through, I need to share those things with other people. I need to, I need to look for ways to bless other people with understanding what I've been blessed with. Again, not bragging about it, not, not treating my imperfections like a trophy. This is just about seeing, recognizing how loved I am by God and recognizing how much He has blessed me through my flaws and imperfections, and in spite of those things. And then having open eyes to see other people who are struggling with the same thing, who are struggling with some failures and some flaws and some imperfections in their own lives, and, and seeing that and, and sharing my victory with them so that they can experience it for themselves, so that they can recognize, hey, God, God can free that other hand. God can do some good things for your life. All hope is not lost. My God still loves you. My God still wants to use you because I look at me and look at what, how much God loves me and what God is doing with me. I know he can do something with you. When was the last time we shared that message with somebody else? We are around people on a daily basis who feel bound up in their right hand, who feel imperfect, who feel like failures because of their addiction, because of their divorce, because of their kids' choices, because of their financial status because of their social status, because of the hurt that they may have caused somebody else in the past. And people need to know there's grace, there's hope, there's forgiveness. I need to share what I've been given. Ehud, you go back to Judges chapter 3, Ehud didn't just kill Eglon and go, all right, done. Whew. Glad that's over with. What did he do? He went and got a whole bunch of other people and told them, guess what? Eglon's dead. We're set free. Let's go get rid of the rest of these Moabites. I know what it's like to get rid of a guy that's suppressing us. Let's go get rid of the rest of them. And he gathered a whole army together, and they went and attacked and drove out the rest of those people. He didn't just hold on to the victory that he had achieved for himself. He got other people to experience it with him. Folks, that's what we're called to do as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is talking to, to Christians in Corinth, to church people. And he goes through a whole list of sins. I mean, he talks about people who commit sexual sins. He talks about greedy people. He talks about drunkards. He talks about liars. And then he looks at, at, at this church after he goes through that list. And in, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, he says, That is what some of you were. 
when I'm talking about sexual sinners, when I'm talking about greedy people, when I'm talking about drunk people, when I'm talking about perpetual liars, I'm talking to you, church people. That is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, Paul says, let's be honest, church. Look at your imperfections. Look at, the, look at the colossal failures you've had in your life. Look at your past. And look, look at what God did with that. Lives are being changed by people who at one time thought, I'd never be able to change anybody's life. And one of the reasons that even these people are experiencing grace and hope and joy and peace in Christ is because an angry, arrogant murderer told them about what God did in his life. We need to allow other people, invite other people to experience the freedom that we've experienced. Folks, no matter how broken you feel, no matter how unacceptable you have been made to feel, no matter how imperfect you might be, you can experience God's grace. You can experience it for yourself and God is putting opportunities around you all the time to invite other people to experience it as well. I want to wrap up in just a second, but I want to remind this church family and tell some of our guests about a friend of mine named Jackson that's sitting right down here. And Jackson and his wife came to Flagstone a few years ago, and, and man, it's such a great story, and I would invite you to go back on Flagstone's YouTube channel to our This Is Us series and listen to Jackson's story from, in, in his own words. But just to let you know a little bit about Jackson, Jackson and, and his wife and their little girl came to Flagstone a few years ago on one Sunday, the first time they have been here, and they enjoyed it. They had a great time here uh, worshiping with us, and, and um, you know, when I talked to them after worship that Sunday, they said, hey, man, we like this. We're going to be back again next Sunday. And the next Sunday, Jackson wasn't here. And I found out that over the weekend, Jackson had made some mistakes and had gotten arrested and was in Benton County Jail. And he spent the next year in prison. And I went to visit him a few times and... and um, all of our in almost all of our conversations, he was wrestling with just guilt of past mistakes, the choices that he made, wishing that he could go back and change them, but he couldn't. And whether it was me or whether it was whether it was Ken and Tracy, or whether it was his own wife, different people were talking to him, going, "Jackson, that's the past. Let's move forward. Let's go on from here." But there was something. There was, something, there was a struggle that Jackson had for a while, feeling left-handed, feeling like he wasn't good enough, and struggling with that, struggling with guilt and struggling with accepting himself and accepting what, what people were telling him, how, how people were telling him God viewed him. And it was a year later when, when Jackson finally got out of prison, was here that next Sunday, and so many people were glad to see him. And here's what I want to tell you about Jackson now. There's more to that story that I could tell you, but we don't have time this morning. Jax has not stopped allowing God to use his left-handedness. And here's what I mean. 
Jackson's kind of a, he's a soft-spoken guy. He's, he, he doesn't necessarily, he's not real loud, not real flamboyant, but he's a hard worker. And he takes care of his family. And if he ever has the opportunity to share his story with somebody else who's going through some of the same issues that he dealt with, he talks to them about it. And he invites them to experience what he's experienced. Is he perfect? Nope. Still making mistakes? Yep. But he's allowed God to do something amazing with his flaws and imperfections. And folks, we all have that story. And it doesn't matter whether we've been to jail or not. It doesn't matter how colossal the failure has been or hasn't been. We've all got imperfections and flaws. We've all got things that, that we can't change and circumstances that we can't change. Ehud could not change the fact that he was left-handed. He couldn't, he couldn't change the fact that he didn't have use of that right hand, but he could allow God to do something with him anyway. Jackson can't change the fact that he made some big mistakes in his past that landed him in jail. It's happened. It's done. He can't do anything about that, but he can now allow God to use what happened to him in the past to bless the lives of other people and to make him a better man. And God can do that for each one of us. And no matter how bound up I feel, my God can set me free. No matter how unacceptable I feel, my God says, I love you no matter what. No matter how useless I feel, my God says, mm -mm, I can use you. I can do some really good things with you. Let's get started. So folks, maybe, maybe some of us are struggling with some left-handedness. We're not feeling fully worthy, fully acceptable. Can you, I, I hope you hear this morning, my God loves you no matter what, and he can use you no matter what. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, we have this treasure, we have this grace, this connection with God. It's in jars of clay. You know, you know how fragile jars of clay are? They can break pretty easily. They get nicks, they get scratches. Parts of them chip away. Rarely do you find a perfect jar of clay. What's Paul saying? We have this amazing grace in really flawed containers that God uses anyway to show his all-surpassing power. So we're going we're gonna to pray here in just a second, and then we're going to sing a song after that. And then after our worship time, if, if there's something in your life that is causing you to feel spiritually left-handed, that's causing you to feel less than, would you come find me or find one of our shepherds? It's going to be right out here by the, the coffee bar, and we'll talk about it. If you've never experienced grace, if you've never experienced that forgiveness, we can help with that. We can help with that today. You can give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. When we're done with our worship, we can make that happen. Don't walk out of here still bound up. Let our Savior set you free. And let him use you to bless the lives of others as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for our time of worship. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness and grace.
Thank you for showing us somebody like Ehud who had flaws, who had imperfections, and who allowed you to use him in such a powerful way. And God, we pray that you would do that for us as well. Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, not so that we can try to get accolades from other people about how amazing we are, but God, so that we can see firsthand how amazing you are by how you use us in spite of our flaws and failures. God, thank you for your grace and your forgiveness that forgives anything, that forgives all things. Thank you for your love that never goes away, that, that never is, is separated from any of us. And God, I pray for those in this room this morning who are struggling with feeling just less than what you have designed them to be, who are feeling unuseful, who are feeling unacceptable, who are feeling unworthy. God, help them to sense and to know that you're the one that gives us value you're the one who uses us to do amazing things. And allow them to start allowing you to do that in their own lives. And God, if there's people that we know that are struggling with those mindsets and those, those problems and, and that view of themselves, help us to be the ones to run to them and to show them what a blessing it is to be your child and how you can use them as well. God, don't let us leave here today still with our right hands bound still feeling like we just don't measure up. Give us freedom through your son. Give us, give us life through your spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. morning. We're very glad you uh, chose to join us today. Summertime is always real fun with uh, knowing how many people are actually going to actually be in town. So we were glad to see uh, the crowd that we had. 
Uh, Marshall, great lesson. That was really good. Um, I'm kind of enjoying this, this, this GOAT series. Jake, thank you for your words this morning. And uh, we need that repetition, man. Deuteronomy tells us, impress them on our kids. Talk about it day and night. Talk about it when you're walking along and when you're lying down and when you're getting up. So repetition's a good thing. Helps us to uh, focus on our purpose. We have a couple of, of announcements we want to make. Ken and Barbara Shoemate have chosen to become fully committed members to Flagstone. Will you guys raise your hand? I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but... Ken introduced himself to me the very first day as Ken and Barbie, and it stuck. I could not get that. I could not get their names out of my brain. It worked really well. Uh, but Ken and Barbara, um, we're really glad that you're joining us. Um, last Sunday we missed a pretty significant event, and uh, I don't know how I didn't have this on my calendar because I put all significant events on my calendar. So, you know, anniversaries, birthdays. Last thing I'm going to do is forget my anniversary. So, last Sunday was somebody's fifth year with us. Brandon, buddy, we are so blessed to have you here. We are so glad that uh, you and Morgan chose to to be here with us. Uh, the work that you do with our teenagers, um, I don't even know how to begin. I, to thank you and we, we're excited about what the next next five bring uh, to see what that's going to look like Jackson man I love you one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet uh, if you haven't had a chance to meet Jackson go put a give him a big old hug um, just a superman we really really think a lot of you I, I tend to gauge somebody by how hard they're willing to work to support their family that's one of the one of the boxes that I check off when I when I get to know someone Jackson you're your tops buddy I uh, I appreciate you let's pray our Heavenly Father we thank you so much for loving us the way you do for seeing Jesus when you see us because without that we'd all be in trouble and we are ever so thankful that uh, that Jesus was willing to take on our sins Lord we ask that you be with our family here help us to reach out connect and serve to grow your kingdom we want to see people come through those doors and to grow a relationship with you. And that's, that's our goal here. We, we pray that you help us to ever strive to, uh, to live the life that we should to show people how to do that. Uh, we're thankful that you um, take our imperfections and use them for your strength. We pray that you uh, give us opportunities to share what you've done for us with those around us. And we pray that you give us the courage to take on those opportunities when we see them. Walk with us this week. Help us to, uh, just help us to shine our light for you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand up together and sing a song that echoes Marshall's lesson of the redemption power that God offers us. And Ellie, you're going to sing out, right? Okay. Your light broke through my night, restored and seen joy. This is how we overcome. This is how.